Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I wholeheartedly intended to finish this today, and we did not in the early service. Maybe I will in this service anyway, and just really mess them up when we come back. Um, but Ephesians chapter 5, in our study of addressing one another, and now we're down to the nitty-gritty. This is where this really becomes... Oh, yeah, sorry. Thanks, Jim. Those signals are so helpful. It's uh, better than the ones that sometimes other people send me. Uh, so the, the, um, uh, as we come down to the end of this and really get into the, the practical part of what he's been saying all along, is we're confronted with this reality that we speak and act based on what we think. And so there is a regulating of the mind that becomes extremely central to being able to live the Christian life. And um, as you know, in all the Pauline letters, Paul likes to follow a, a pattern. He likes to start with a, a full doctrinal statement, that fleshes out a bunch of doctrinal ideas, and then moves to the practical. And it seems like sometimes we read the doctrinal part and say, I got that. I'm good, that's all I need for Christianity. And, of course, that isn't so. If Brian Smith had gone to medical college and finished med school and then got out and said, I know all about medicine and never used it to touch another soul, it would be an absolute waste. And for a Christian to take in biblical truth however deep, however well-constructed, however fully doctrinally sound, if that doesn't translate into the way that we think and then into the way we live, there's just been this absolute disconnect. It's, it's at a total loss. Um, Satan is very theologically astute. He knows truth. But it has no impact on his heart and on his mind. At least not, not a, 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 an impact such as conforming him to the image of Christ. But that's exactly where all this is supposed to take us. So if, if we just come and we drink in and we say, oh man, I got that, I know that doctrine, I've got that idea down. And that doesn't move over into where we think and, and what, what happens in our hearts and then how we live. That, that is just a rank religionism that doesn't save. And Paul won't rest content. The Holy Spirit speaking through him is going to draw us to say, no, we've learned these things. Now this is how it starts to happen in your life. This is where it has to go. It can't stop at that point. So he's brought us through this, look carefully then. You know, then is a... Look back to the first four chapters, four and a half chapters, and based on that, look carefully then how you walk. This, this has got to have some impact on you. It, it, and, and it's to make you not unwise, but wise. Walk as a person with, with wisdom. Uh, keep your finger in Ephesians 5 for a moment and go back to uh, Psalm 19 where we have had that wonderful psalm read for us about four times now and just pull some things out here. The Word of God is not meant to be um, static in our lives. 
if we go there, we're, we're going to lose it. So you've got these first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. A day-to-day pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. There's no such thing as a language that doesn't communicate to somebody, is the statement. And if God has spoken through those things, we ought to be taking them in. They mean something to us. You can tell an awful lot by creation. The magnitude of God, the, the infinitude of God, the, the, the genius of God. The power of God, the goodness of God. You know, he makes food taste good. He didn't have to do that. He could have made apples taste like sawdust. But he's good, so he makes food taste good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I do that as often as I possibly can. But he's done that. He's, he's put us in a, in a comfortable world where there's... Sunshine, and, and for some of you who like change of seasons, there's even that. I, though I still think that's a product, product of the fall. But the, um, there's, for me, I'm going to Texas this week. There's heat. Lots of it. Sunshine. No clouds. Good, good heat. You can tell a lot, but it's not enough. Then he brings us to special revelation in 7 through 9. And look at the way he uses these words. They're synonymous. In verse 7, there's the law. And the testimony. In verse 8, there's the precepts and the commandment. And in verse 9, there's the fear and the rules. Those are all synonymous for his word. It's all he's saying. Now, my word, it's perfect, it's full, it's sufficient. And what does it do? It revives the soul. It doesn't just go into your head. It does something for your soul. It revives it. It renews it. If, if it's not reviving your soul, if you're spending time in the Word and that's not happening, there's something wrong. You need to find out why. Because it's designed to do that. And the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's solid. It can be trusted, making wise the simple. The word simple, there's a great word. Um, it was a farming term back then. And it meant... Um, it, it's funny how it comes into, into present-day parlance in a different way. We would say a person is open-minded because to say that they were simple meant that you left both barn doors open so anything you put in there could get out. That's what it means to be open-minded. You've got the barn doors open. Stuff just comes in and goes right out the other side. If that happens with biblical truth, where's the change? And and we've got to wonder why change hasn't happened if we're taking it in. Change should be part of of that process. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're, They're correct and upright. And that rejoices the heart. And His commandment is pure, unmixed. And because it's unmixed, it brings light to the eyes. It, it lets you see truthfully. It lets you see accurately. And the fear of the Lord is, is clean. It doesn't produce wrong results in the, in the heart and mind. But, and that's why it endures forever. It, it has no corruption in it. And the rules of the Lord are true. They are straight. You can measure things by them. And they're righteous altogether. You can see in all of this, there's an intent that in the giving of His Word, 
Change is meant to be brought about. Change, inward change. And if it doesn't do that, then, then there's something that needs to be looked at. So look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not with the, both barn doors open, but with stuff coming in and, and roosting there. And the first way that that looks is by making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You're functioning in reality. What, what uh, Francis Schaeffer would call real reality. True truth. With a, an accurate worldview, not just dealing with individual items of truth. But putting it together in a, in a package that comprehends the whole. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. The opposite, though. Be filled with the Spirit. And then it is in this that it spills over into what's left in these next three verses. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But what's the foundation of that? Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If the song isn't here, it doesn't matter if it's here. And if it is here, it will show up here. My daughter loves musicals. It proves to me she may not, in fact, be my daughter. (laughs) Musicals are artificial, right? So instead of talking to each other, people sing to each other. This is not what he's after in this passage, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Oh, well, we should, we should sing to each other instead of talking to one another. So when church is over, you go, wasn't it a great service today? And you, oh, yes, hallelujah. No, that's, that's not what he's after. That's artificial. That's contrived. He, he, he doesn't have that in mind at all. What he has in mind is a heart that's overflowing with the goodness of God that's singing to him that then can't help but come out of the lips and bless others. That's what he's after. It's, it's a really rich picture. How we do that, how we address one another, then is directly tied to our being filled with the Spirit. And that shows itself in these four attitudes or activities that we're going to start to unpack a little more today. And we looked just a little bit, we just scratched the surface last week on this first part um, in verse 19 of addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's an identical statement to what he made in Colossians. It's clear that for Paul this is a a mainstay. This gets repeated in in identical fashion. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. You see where that's going. So there is this, this taking in the richness of God's word that spills over then into this song in the heart that that then goes on and touches others. And as we said last week, while you can't make too sharp of a distinction here, there are some shades, some nuances in these words. Psalms originally, and the word broadened out over time, but originally it meant singing praises to God with musical accompaniment, with instruments. And then hymns, but hymns really don't make its way into the church's vocabulary until the New Testament time, and hymns were more distinctly Christian. Not absolutely so, but tended to be that way. 
And they were expressions that grew out of contemplating the greatness of our salvation. And, and we got to sing about it. Um, uh, Sky and I had our first date on uh, Valentine's Day, uh, a little over six years ago. And, uh, and on the way home, I wrote a poem. I couldn't help it. It's called Rectified. I'm not going to give it to you. Now, Rector's her last name. I won't, won't give it to you now, but, but I had to write. I, it, it had to flow out. These things were getting exciting. And, uh, and man, that, that's got to find its way out. You, you get excited about new soap that works great, and you tell people about it. And uh, I was just talking to somebody the other night, and they were saying how, how they just they like shout for getting stains out of their wash, but they're disappointed that it's now a foam instead of a gel, and you've got to use eight times as much. Well, it was what was on their heart, right? And so that's what came out. What's on your heart is what comes out. What, what you find yourself talking about the most is what you're thinking about the most, right? I mean, it's just reality. And so he's saying, well, if we're going to make this move, something's going to have to happen in our thinking. We'll get there in just a second. And then spiritual songs were individual poems and expressions that grew up in the church. As a matter of fact, there's quite a number of those probably located in your New Testament. You can find some passages that were hymns or, or portions of hymns in the early church. This idea, though, of developing a, a holy conversation is a really important concept. Um, Thomas Watson writes on it. This book is, was written on the verse in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus says that since John has come and been preaching the Gospel, that men are forcing their way into the kingdom. It's taken by violence. And he uses that as a jumping off point, saying, you know, when you're, when you're really hooked on it, you go after it. You're not lazy about it. You, you go after it. Some of you are, are aficionados of a, of a particular hobby, and you know that's it. You, you go after it. You, you violently pursue it is the picture there. And he's saying, a, a Christian who isn't violently pursuing Christ or the kingdom, you've got to wonder. But part of doing violence to our own sin and our flesh in the process, that's, that's part of the process. That's, that's part of what we do. So he talks about having holy discourse or conversation with one another. And he says, indeed, we're backward enough in this. And therefore, we have need to provoke ourselves to it. We don't do it naturally. They that fear the Lord spoke often one to another, Malachi 3.16. A gracious person does not only have religion in his heart, but also in his tongue. The law of his God is in his heart, and his tongue speaks of judgment, Psalm 37. He drops holy words as pearls. It is the fault of Christians that they do not, in company, provoke themselves to good discourse. And then he mentions the uncomfortableness of that sometimes. He says it is a sinful modesty that there is much visiting... But, but they do not give one another's souls a visit. Boy, that's rich. We visit with each other. We say, how you doing? We talk about, oh, my car's not getting great mileage. But we don't visit with each other's souls. A great thought. 
In worldly things, their tongue is as the pen of a ready writer. But in matters of religion, it is as if their tongue did cleave to the roofs of their mouths. As we must answer to God for idle words, so also for this silence. Let us offer violence to ourselves on setting forth good conversation. What should our words uh, dilate and expiate upon but heaven? We don't talk much about heaven, do we? It's not real. That it's really going to balance out everything we're suffering or enduring here. It doesn't, doesn't sink in. The world is, is like a great inn, a hotel. And we're guests in this hotel. Travelers, when they are met at the hotel, do not spend all their time talking about the hotel. They're lodged there but a few hours and they are gone. They speak about the country to which they're traveling. So when we meet together, we should not be talking only about the world. We are to leave this world presently. We should be talking about our heavenly country. I like that. I had a boss. I used to travel quite a bit for work. And the first time I went on a business trip, I had stayed at a place I think he thought was a little too expensive. So he came into my office with my expense report. And he says, was that a nice place? I said, yeah, it was a real nice place. He said, all the hotel rooms in the world look exactly the same with your eyes closed. (laughs) I got the message. I knew what he was trying to say. That we may provoke ourselves to good discourse, for it will not be done without some kind of violence to self. Let these considerations be duly weighed. Discourse demonstrates what the heart is. As a mirror shows what the face is, whether it be fair or foul, so our words show what the heart is. Vain speeches discover a light, feathery heart. And gracious speeches are the birth of a gracious heart. The water of the conduit shows what the spring is like. Holy conversation is very edifying. The apostle bids us to edify one another in this passage exactly. And and how, how more than in this way, good conversation enlightens the mind when it is ignorant and settles it when it's wavering. A good life adorns religion and good discourse propagates it. Let me just give you a little more because this is just so well said. Gracious discourse makes us resemble Christ. His words were perfumed with holiness. Grace was poured into his lips, Psalm 45, 2. He spoke to the admiration of all. His hands worked miracles, but his tongue spoke oracles. All bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, Luke 4.22. Christ never came into any company without engaging in good discourse. Levi made him a great feast, Luke 5.29, and Christ feasted with him with holy discourse. And when he came to Jacob's well, he was soon speaking of the water of life, John 4. The more holy our speeches are, the more we are like Christ. Should not the members be like the head? God takes special notice of every good word we speak when it's meet. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him, Malachi 3.16. 
There was a Scythian captain, Tamerlane, who always had a book with him, and the book had the names and the good deeds of his servants, which he bountifully rewarded. Nice thing. What if you had a book that kept all the nice things people had done for you or said to you in it instead of all the things they had done nasty to you? Wouldn't that change the way we talk? As God has a bottle for the tears of his people, so he has a book in which he writes down their good speeches and will make honorable mention of them in the last day. Holy discourse will be a means to bring Christ into our company. The two disciples were communing of the death and sufferings of Christ, and while they were speaking, Jesus drew near to them. Quote, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, Luke 25, 15, 24, 15. When men entertain bad discourse, Satan draws near and makes as though he were one of the company too. But when they have holy and gracious conversation... Christ himself draws near, and wherever he comes, he brings a blessing along with him. So much for the first, the offering of violence to ourselves. That's a violent thing to take heaven that way. Good conversation. A good conversation that spills over. As I already mentioned, P.T. O'Brien says that although firm distinctions cannot be drawn between these terms, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, He says, nevertheless, they describe the full range of singing which the Spirit prompts. Through these songs, members of the community who are continually filled by the Spirit will instruct, edify, and exhort one another. That's neat. That's neat. Uh, Harry Ironside writes that when Pliny was governor of Bithynia, this is back early 2nd century, He wrote a most interesting letter to the Roman emperor, Trajan, uh, because being in the government, he was being asked to persecute Christians, and he wasn't sure why. So he decided to try and figure it out. So he writes to the emperor, and and he he asks, asks why the Christians were being exterminated, and then he writes this, quote, I've been trying to get all the information I could regarding them, the Christians. I have even hired spies to profess to be Christians and become baptized in order that they might get into the Christian services without suspicion. Now, that was a long process, by the way. Back then, you typically were catechized for nine months before you were baptized. Then you were baptized usually once a year on Easter. Okay? So you got into the process, and then it took a year before you got there. So these guys had to commit themselves. They were undercover, you know, way under. They were in deep cover. And um, so contrary to what I supposed, he writes, I find that the Christians meet at the dead of night or early in the morning. And the first thing they do is sing a hymn to Christ as God. That's awesome. So the guy from the outside picks up on this. This is what they do. They gather and they sing hymns to Christ as God. They read from their own sacred writings and then partake of a very simple meal consisting of bread and wine and water. Uh, The water added to make the wine diluted in order that there might be enough for everybody who's there. This is all I can find out, he writes, except that they exhort each other to be subject to the government and to pray for all men. Close quote. That good. That holy conversation. We'll get in our pulpits and slam the government. I've done it myself. 
It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Note singing hymns and addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But see, this comes out of singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's the second one here, letter B. That's because what's going on internally is what comes out externally. This is what the wise man is doing inside. He's making melody in his heart to the Lord, and therefore it's not artificial for it to come out. This is especially hard, and I'm going to... an area that may be a little dicey for some of us. But I need to ask, do you pay attention to your inward thought life and attitudes? Do you pay attention to your inner life, your thought life, and your attitudes? Now, this is, this is harder for men. We, we don't like to do that. We like to just have our mind made up about what we're going to do and not worry about how we feel about it until we get angry. You gals, you tend to be more in touch with what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what's going on, your own attitudes in your own heart. Now, I'm not trying to feminize men here. The truth is that when we get to heaven, we're going to be the bride of Christ. So, men, we've got to get used to wearing a dress now. And there's, there's a part of that that's just, that's just a little foreign to the way we think and feel. And, and, and it's the same problem gals have now with trying to reckon with being sons of God. Or, or identifying with a God whose father, when their father was a, a goof, can be tough. But we've, we've got to cross over some lines there. And, I, and I'm going to ask you to think of for a moment whether or not you are in touch with your own thought life and your own feelings. Most of us don't want to go there. It's not a comfortable place, but it's what he's asking us to do, you see. He's asking us to reckon with whether or not we know if we're making melody in our heart to the Lord. Are we setting our minds and our hearts on the good things that foster a sweet way about us, or are we setting our hearts and minds on the things that produce the opposite? It's a simple question, but it will spill out. I mean, what... What we think about most will come out of our mouths. And if not right at the moment, it'll come out later. You know, for men, it usually comes out in something about the cornflakes. And we erupt about the cornflakes when it was three weeks earlier, something was really wrong. But we weren't recognizing that we were already in discord over this. Weren't recognizing the anger and the attitude in our own hearts. Weren't dealing with that before the throne of God first. And so because we weren't recognizing it there, it finally comes out spilling over the dam later. We need to be wondering what we think about. Where does your mind go when it finally gets the freedom to just think? What do you you think about? What What do you let your mind run to? What do you spend time turning over in your brain? Philippians 4, extremely poignant on this point.
Again, Paul following a similar pattern, working through his doctrinal things, now coming down to the, to the practical, asks this question and then kind of gives a charge. Here's the charge. Finally, brothers, verse 8. Now that means brothers and sisters. That's all of you. Okay? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In our society, some have virtually made it a foregone conclusion that young men and now even young women have no ability to deal with lust or extreme sexuality. And I want to tell you that's a lie of the enemy, but it does have to be dealt with in the mind. We have to take control of our thoughts and not let our thoughts run us. I think it's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said we need to stop listening to ourselves so much and talk to ourselves more. Take control of where your thoughts go. Where do your thoughts go? What do you let them do? Uh, that's that's the, the key here. Uh, and look at, look at the way that he lines these out. First of all, whatsoever is true versus what? Well, we could say just versus lies, I suppose. But I think he's after something even more important there. Whatsoever is true and that I can verify, that I can count on right here, that I know is revealed, unassailable truth versus what I imagine or suppose. We get in trouble when we think about what we imagine and what we suppose and what we suspect and not train our minds to say, I need to deal with what I know is true. It isn't long before we'll, we'll drive a wedge between ourselves and other people because we base our feeling and our, and our attitudes toward them on what we imagine and what we suppose and what we suspect and not what God has said is true. He says, train the mind. Train the mind. You, you can't have a heart that rejoices in the Lord if you're constantly mulling over what you imagine or suppose is evil in somebody else. How can you then be singing in your heart with melody to the Lord? You can't. It'll stop us dead in our tracks. It'll prevent us from ever moving an inch further. So he starts with, if you're going to think on something, think on what's true and what you, what you can know is true. Can, the, the, secondly, think about what is honorable versus what? What's base and unworthy? Can I tell you that some of us need to stop spending so much time looking at the news? The news often is reporting nothing but what's base and unworthy. You say, well, I need to know what's going on in the world. Wouldn't you rather know what's going on in the mind of the one who runs the world? That's better. 
Sometimes I suppose we need to write letters to our congressman. It's better to pray to the one who changes the minds of the congressman. Right? And if we're not doing the one, we probably shouldn't be doing the other. I mean, we need to, need to have the full package there. Speak for truth, but boy, speak to the one who is truth. Where things can make a difference. Globally. How easily we get caught up in paying attention to what's base and unworthy. And no wonder then we talk to one another about how the wheels are coming off. How society's disintegrating at every turn. How Sin has been in the world for at least 6,000 years. Right? 4,000 probably from Adam to, to Jesus. And then another 2,000. And the world has not disintegrated yet. And if I read my Bible right, it tells me how it's going to end. And it's not going to disintegrate till he comes back. So if I'm re- watching the news and they're saying, ah, the world's going to come apart tomorrow. No, it's not. What about global warming? It gets warm. And for those of us who like heat, it's a benefit. And you know what happens after global warming? It gets cool. And it's great for all you who like the cold. I'm, I'm praying for you. We, we fix our minds on what's base and unworthy. And how then can we have melody in our heart to the Lord? How can we? It isn't that we deny that those things are out there. It's that we have to put them in their proper place. So they don't captivate us. So they don't, they don't garner all our attention. So we don't focus there. I'm, I'm one of those guys really good at drawing me back from the line when I get, when I get too close. Um, anybody who does things publicly, you know, every, every week you want to hit a home run. And you want everybody to say, oh, that was wonderful. It's the voice of God. Right? We'll get in the car, and Sky will say, do you want to hear it now or later? <laughs> it's good. It's good. Because if I've heard a criticism, I'm heard, oh, the worst thing I ever did, they're going to fire me. This is terrible. It's awful. And she's got to call me back to reality and say, you take this one little speck, and then you make that everything? It's foolishness. No, he says, he says take these things that are... This is my broken car key. At, at this distance, I can see you all very clearly. It doesn't block anything. At this distance, I can't see anything but the key. My heart's not going to be happy. How are you looking at your problems, your issues, your, your woes, your cares, your concerns? They're all real. They're absolutely real. But are they all that's in your field of vision, occluding everything else? Or are they in their proper perspective? Because this is really pretty small. Think, think on these things, he, he says. And whatever is just. Why does he go to just? Because you ever get in a discussion with somebody, an argument with somebody, and then for the next three weeks, what you go over in your mind is, what I should have said was, 
right? I mean, you just roll it back over and over and over. You have the same conversation, except this time you win it. And you just know what you should have said at that moment and would have fixed everything. Because I don't want what's just. I want what's best for me. And he says, tell you what, think about what's just. Not, not, not just what works out in your favor. What's just? It changes the way the mind functions. Whatsoever is pure versus that which is profane and unclean. Oh, how we take in uncleanness all the time and don't, don't even think about it. I'm so grateful for this, this gal's retreat that's coming up. Because it's just a reality. When I was in Denmark for 10 days there a few years ago, back in 1991, I stayed with Fleming Rasmussen and his wife, their son and their daughter, lovely family, really committed Christians. And uh, he's talking about the struggles they have there in Denmark with a state church and Christians being thrown out and how all that works. And the morning newspaper came. There was nudity on the front page of the morning newspaper. Times Union. If that happened to you, your Democrat and Chronicle came today. And I went to Fleming and I said, how do you people survive in this? How do you do this? And he talked about the training of the mind. To see but not dwell. To move over it and move on. And not let your mind stay there. When I talked to another pastor there about that situation and how they were wrestling with it, he said, he, he pulled out the old adage from Luther. And Luther's adage was, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Right? I'm not going to let my mind stay there. I, I can't focus on the unclean, the impure. I've got to focus on the, the pure. Got to, got to change where my mind goes and, and govern my own thoughts. We live in a society that has virtually told our young people that, that it, by virtue of the way that, that they handle the whole issue of, of birth control and everything else, that basically no one can have self-control in our society. Hogwash. The mind needs to be trained scripturally, biblically, by the Spirit. Sustained, but it sure can be done. Whatsoever is lovely. I had more fun tracing out this word. And the best opposite, or the, the best definition I could get of lovely is the best way of understanding its opposite. Whatsoever is innocently charming. That's the way to understand that word lovely. Oh, there are things in this life that are just so sweet and innocently charming. And he says, you know what? You think on those. You, you don't think about the other. Train the mind. Whatsoever is commendable. That idea is what's worth exalting. Can I tell you, because we live in a society of celebrity, uh, and, and I'm not doing this to berate an individual. I'm saying this to point out the phenomena. Paris Hilton is not worth exalting. Her lifestyle is not worth exalting. We are confronted with all sorts of people who are paraded before us as those who are held up as valued by society. 
And as human beings, they are souls made in the image of God who need evangelized. There's, there's infinite dignity there, but their lifestyle and what's going on is not worth exalting. It's not commendable. To have our thoughts locked there will harm us. If there's any excellence, that word excellence almost always tied together with moral excellence throughout the New Testament. If there's anything worthy of praise, praise rather than blaming others, think about these things. Take control of your thoughts because that's how you will find a heart that sings to him, that overflows into addressing others. Let me go back again just one or two short quotes on that idea because there, there the idea is and to think about these is to meditate on them to, to let them take up residence in your heart to be the, the thing that you, you spend your time thinking about now, I don't know how you do it I don't want to get legalistic about this I don't know how you do it if you've, if you've got a quiet time every day whatever that looks like to you but if you do not get alone Every day with God for some period of time, you just can't get a grip on this to save your neck. I'm sorry. People say, oh, you're being legalistic. No, it's no more legalistic than saying, you know what? If you don't drink, you'll dehydrate. It's just the the plain truth. If the mind does not get an opportunity to be ordered rightly before God, it will not think in those ways. Watson addresses it as the issue of meditation. He says, We must offer violence to ourselves in meditation, a duty wherein the very heart and lifeblood of religion lies. And meditation may be described as this. It is a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and seriously ponder them and then apply them to ourselves. And so in meditation, there's two things. First... It necessitates a Christian's retiring of himself, a locking himself up from the world. Meditation is a work which cannot be done in a crowd. He's right. Some of you are going to look at me and I, I can, you know, I, I feel your pain because I hear it. You don't know what my life is like. I mean, I got kids, I've got a job, I've got a husband, I've got a wife, I've got all this stuff going on. You don't understand how busy my life is. And I'm going to say, husbands, you're going to have to help your wives have the opportunity to get alone with God. And wives, you're going to have to make room so that your husbands can get alone with God. And if you've got families where you can't manage that, some of us without as many uh, family responsibilities maybe need to help you so that you've got time to get alone with God. But you need to get alone with God. And it's not a group thing. You've got to spend time with him alone. It was said of Luther that if he knew he had a very pressing day, he had to have at least an hour in prayer before he went out to face the day. And then he wrote, and if I have an exceptionally pressing day where it's going to be worse than, than, you know, it's just everything's piled high and I know it's just going to stress me to no end, then I need two hours in prayer. The busier the day, the longer he spent in prayer. Can I tell you why? You spend that time alone with God and your mind will be much more capable of dealing with the rest of the material. Without it, you'll face it in panic and anxiety 
and stress and be unable to cope. And then not paying attention to the stress and the anxiety that's going on inside. That's going to just keep going and going and going and then finally bubble over. I know I've lived this. I've done that bubbling over. I know what that looks like. I also know what the other looks like. I know what that's like to experience that as well. And I'm telling you, it can be done. Take that time with him. Give the word sufficient time to speak to you every day. And if you're, you may have to cut some things out. There may be an activity you can't participate in because you need that time. There may be a book you can't read, a program you can't watch, a movie you can't see. There may be whatever something you can't do. But you can't neglect this or you'll never find yourself there. Secondly, it is a serious thinking upon God. It's not a few transient thoughts that are quickly gone but a fixing and staying of the mind upon heavenly objects. And this cannot be done without exciting all the powers of our souls and offering violence to ourselves. But where is the meditating Christian? Here I might lament the lack of holy meditation. Most people live in a hurry. They are so distracted with the cares of the world that they can find no time to meditate or scarcely ask their souls how they do. I smiled when I read that because he wrote that in 1669. You know what? The day is not one minute or second shorter than it was in 1669. Not a bit. We may have filled it with more stuff. There may be more demands think on these things he says you've got to get a a handle on your on your heart so i do ask you what are you dwelling on i can tell what you're dwelling on when you're angry can tell what you're dwelling on when you're defensive and frustrated and full of resentment and doubt and fear because that's what comes out (laughs) your spouse knows it and your kids know it and so the call here is to a to a place, if we're going to address one another in the Spirit, we've got to be where we can drink in and, and seeking the Spirit deliberately to be filled up with the joy and the peace and the long-suffering and the gentleness and the uprightness and the, the faithfulness and the, the self-control that is Christ's. Jesus said it, didn't he? He put it in that one sentence which just sets it all. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You and I talk most about what's in our hearts. So what's in our hearts? And he's saying, don't stay there. (laughs) Recognize it. And, And move past it. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, not artificially in some strange fashion. But because you're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, because you're rejoicing in His goodness, 
You've taken enough time to think about His goodness today and taken enough time to think about the greatness of your salvation as it has come out of the Word and that has overflowed into other things than out of the abundance of the heart the mouth will speak. Now the next two that He gives us, 20 and 21, we'll have to take up when I get back from vacation. Verse 20, dealing with the giving of thanks always and for everything and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I'll only say in closing that in the giving of thanks there, and I will ask you to think about this in the, the two weeks that are intervening, is that in the giving of thanks for everything there, he's not asking us to adopt some sort of a strange, masochistic, oh boy, that hurt, please do that again, God. Um, thank you. Uh, Oliver Twist, more gruel, please? That's not the concept. The, the concept there is to say that all of this, however difficult, however painful, however hard, has to be weighed in the balance of His greatness and His glory and His goodness and His wisdom and His love and with the full knowledge that one day you will stand in the presence of God and He will wipe away every single tear. And you'll be able to say, that's why I was supposed to give you thanks. That's why. I can see your purpose. I can see your heart. And there was no need for me to resent. There was every reason to be thankful. For some of you right now, that sounds impossible. I'm not unmindful of that. I know some of the burdens are enormous and the pain beyond belief. I promise you His Word is true. His Word is true. Maybe you can only give Him thanks right now by faith. But believe His goodness. Believe His grace. Believe His promises. And the day will bear it out. And in that, you'll find a song in your heart making melody to Him. I know what it's like to lose that song. I know what it's like to let the disappointment and the resentment and the pain cloud it, dampen my own ears to it, and not even know it's gone because not paying enough attention to what's going on inside. But I can promise you that He desires it for you, and He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a technique to make that happen. He says, that's why I provide you my Spirit. Seek to be filled with my Spirit. Seek for Him to fill you up with Christ. That's Him. And in that, the overflow will come. Father, I thank you for passages like this because they are so immensely real and practical. Often we are prisoners of our own thoughts. Uh, Father, I know what it's like to be there and I know what it's like for you to deliver me from it. And I'm so grateful that you do that. I know that there are those here today who 
who right now, even as I say these words, they, they're wrestling with deep disappointments that they've never even identified fully. Resentments that they've kept buried. Scripture's clear that we can be self-deceiving. And by that we can, we can take those things that are true inwardly and that we are really thinking deep down and, and cover them up and treat them like they aren't really there when they are. We need to get before your throne and let your spirit do that examining work to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked ways in us. To bring those things to the surface because there's remedy in you. Not to put us down or to to make us afraid, but to to know that there can be complete freedom. To have that removed like a, a splinter that's gone deep under the skin and, and finally has to be opened up in order for it to be removed. But once it's removed, then the healing can really begin. Father, make us to know our hearts and minds before you uh, and to take the hint from the way we address one another. And then to find those times alone with you consistently looking to you. Because you promise how much more do you delight to give the Holy Spirit to them who ask. And to plead with you, Holy Spirit, to fill us up with Christ. With his joy, with his peace, with his long-suffering, with his gentleness, with his uprightness, with his faithfulness, with his self-control. Because we have none of our own. And out of the joy then that fills the heart, singing and making melody in our hearts to you, that will bubble over to those around us. Make us that people. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.